I'm reading from Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 31. Then God said, Let us make humankind in our image, according to our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the wild animals of the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. God said, See, I have given you every plant, yielding every plant yielding seed that is upon the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit you shall have them for food and to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the air and to everything that creeps on the earth everything that has the breath of life i have given every green plant for food and it was so god saw everything that he had made and indeed, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, sixth day. A reading from Galatians chapter 3, verses 23 to 29. Now before faith came, we were imprisoned and guarded under the law until faith would be revealed. Therefore the law was our disciplinarian until Christ came, so that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer subject to a disciplinarian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. As many of you as were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is no longer Jew or Greek. There is no longer slave or free. There is no longer male and female. For all of you are one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham, Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So let us pray. Loving God, may the words of my lips and the meditations of all our hearts be now and always acceptable in your sight, Lord our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I don't know if you're familiar with the author Jeanette Winterson at all. A few years ago, she wrote a book that I came across called Why Be Happy When You Could Be Normal. It was based on her experiences growing up in a conservative northern household, church, and local community. And I think I liked it because, to some extent, it resonated with my own experience. I'm also from Lancashire, and while church wasn't part of my life as a youngster particularly, I also grew up in an area that was socially conservative and quite strongly conformist. And that meant that life could be rather difficult on that council estate if you didn't fit in for one reason or another. Being someone who was quite academic and geeky in an environment where university was considered to be not really for the likes of us was difficult enough. But adding being queer and disabled into the pot, and well, you had quite a combustible mixture going on. So for me, Jeanette Winterson's title, 
why be happy when you could be normal, feels like what I've spent most of my life rebelling against in one sense or another. And the struggles I've had with doing that started at quite a young age, but not always for the reasons you might think. When I was about seven, one of our teachers started a lunchtime sewing club. And while this was running, one of the teaching assistants, who I remember as being really kind of big and scary and formidable, but actually wasn't really, because I met her in later life, called Mrs. Hazelhurst. She dragged me aside when I was running around in the playground and said, well, why aren't you at the sewing club? All the other girls in your class are at the sewing club. I didn't know how to respond, so I just sort of shrugged my shoulders. I was used to being told off for not being ladylike enough, and this seemed to just be another one of those instances. And she said to me, well, one day you're going to be a wife and a mother, and you're going to need to mend your children's clothes. So you should be at the sewing club so you can get practicing. Looking back on it, I suppose feminism just hadn't reached that part of Lancashire by the early 1990s. But the teaching assistant's uh, remarks reveal quite a lot about the assumptions that shaped the area I grew up in. Assumptions around gender roles and what it was appropriate for someone from my kind of background to aspire to, as well as displaying, I would argue, quite blatant heterosexism. But my refusing to go to the sewing club wasn't a conscious rebellion against any of this stuff. The fact is I'm dyspraxic, which means I have problems with coordination and fine motor skills. So I hated sewing, it was absolute torture. It would take me hours to thread a needle, so why on earth would I want to do something in my lunch hour that I hated during class time? It brings me to my first point about trans inclusion. We're not one-dimensional people. Friends, I think if we were to do an exercise this morning in putting together a league table of, of inclusion issues, for want of a better term, and ranked them by which was the most controversial, I suspect that in a lot of people's eyes, trans inclusion would be right up there, probably second only to same-sex marriage. The visibility of trans people has increased enormously in the seven and a half years since I came out. And in many ways, that is a good thing. As a teenager growing up in the era of Section 28, it wasn't possible to talk about being bisexual. All those kind of discussions were just shut down. And it certainly wasn't possible to talk about how I felt that every day my body was growing further and further away from how I knew myself to be on the inside. So if this greater visibility means that there are fewer young people out there who feel isolated and ashamed as I did, with all the negative consequences for mental health that that brings, then it's worth the downsides. However, those downsides can't be underestimated. And in the UK in particular, I would suggest that trans people are borne the brunt of a kind of backlash that there's been against people of gender and sexual minorities in recent years. I don't want to stand here this morning and say being trans is all doom and gloom and woe is me, but I don't think that you can deny there's a connection between the almost daily diet of negative news coverage and a spike in hate crimes against trans people. So against this difficult backdrop, the questions of what trans inclusion looks like and what that means for Christian theology are really important ones. One of the other negative consequences of being more visible is that groups like Christian Concern, I think that's a great name because they're very concerning people. Christian Concern, having lost the argument about same-sex marriage, I think have decided to find another cause to attack and trans people seem to be it. 
It seems to me they've gone in search of various aspects of the scriptures that they can weaponize and turn against trans people to deny that our experiences and identities are valid. And alas, this tactic of looking out for texts like that, such as our Old Testament reading for this morning, is not new. The late feminist theologian Phyllis Tribble coined the famous phrase, texts of terror, when she was talking about um, the experiences of women who'd undergone immense suffering that were recorded in the Hebrew scriptures. And others have taken that phrase and used it to apply to those texts which have been weaponized and used to oppress people, perhaps because of their ethnicity or sexual orientation or sex, for example. And it's a pattern that sadly seems to get repeated as we go down the centuries and new causes emerge. But do these texts, these texts of terror as they've become, actually say what anti-trans campaigners claim they do? So let's begin at the beginning with Genesis 1. Straight away we find ourselves having to grapple with considerable complexity because this idea of human beings being made in the image of God actually only appears three times throughout the entire Bible, all of those within the first 11 chapters of Genesis, which act as the prologue to the whole Bible but are plain weird in many ways and quite difficult to interpret. And moreover, this mysterious claim about us bearing God's image is never actually explained. The writers never spell out what they mean. It's never elaborated upon. And so down the years, a lot of theological ink has been spilt trying to make sense of this idea. It's been associated with our capacity for, among other things, rational thought, creativity, moral reasoning, and the ability to form loving relationships as well as being associated with the idea that we have dominion over all of creation. None of these interpretations, it seems to me, are unproblematic. So, for example, if we focus all our attention, as some do, on saying that bearing the image of God is about our capacity for rational thought, then we risk dehumanizing people like my brother with significant learning disabilities. And moreover, hopefully you don't need me to tell you how damaging for the environment our claims to have um, the right to dominate the rest of creation are proven to be. So perhaps then, this idea of being made in God's image isn't best understood in terms of some capacity or characteristic that we might have, but instead, in terms of relationship. It's widely acknowledged among biblical scholars that Genesis 1 is a doxology, which is a fancy way of saying a hymn of praise. And that's why it has the kind of repetitive structure it does as it builds up to its climax where God declares that human beings are indeed very good. And while we can't be absolutely certain of its origin, we can note very strong similarities between this hymn and other creation narratives kicking around in the ancient Near East around the time Israel was in exile in Babylon. I don't think these parallels are accidental, and they reveal a shift that was going on in Israel's understanding of God. See, at that time, people often thought of gods, of deities, as localized. So each god had its sort of control over a particular geographical area. And Israel had kind of been a bit like that. But when they were carted off to exile in Babylon, they really had to wrestle with the question of what does it mean to sing the Lord's song in a strange land? And wrestling with that led them to realize that God isn't confined to any one area. And that actually Yahweh, the God of Israel, is the God who created all of the heavens and the earth. 
And you can see this being played out in the rest of Genesis 1. So, for example, it talks about the sun and the moon being created by God, quite specifically because the Babylonians believed that these things were gods of themselves. And Genesis was saying, no, they're as created as anything else. So hence, Israel realized through this that they hadn't been abandoned in exile. And this meant that Genesis 1, this wonderful hymn of praise, was intended, I think, to be a text of hope. Now, dramatic as this was, there was also another shift that was going on. I think it's deeply significant how, in a highly patriarchal society such as that at the time, women and men are both acknowledged here as being made in God's image. As Walter Brueggemann argues in his very helpful commentary on this passage, bearing God's image is something that we do together in relationship. It's not mine or your private possession. To borrow a phrase, God's image is for the many, not the few. Hence, as well as being a text of hope, as I mentioned earlier, Genesis 1 also has the potential to be a text of liberation. But we need to sound a note of caution at this point. Some theologians, most notably my great namesake, Karl Barth, and the moral theologian of Donovan, have taken this insight and focused in very narrowly on biological differences between men and women. And they've argued that women and men complement each other by fitting into two distinct boxes, so that anyone who doesn't quite fit in one of those is going against God's word. Now, not only does that viewpoint ignore the vital insights brought by intersex people, who are biologically neither straightforwardly male or female, but history teaches us, I think, about the dangers of looking at a human being and deciding what our function and place is, depending on what our bodies look like. It can be, sorry, it's a salutary reminder, if we needed one, of how texts of hope and liberation can very easily become texts of terror. Now, things don't get much better when we look at how Jesus' use of these words from Genesis in the New Testament have also been weaponized by people opposed to trans rights. I've been told that as Jesus himself says that God created us male and female in Mark 10, 10, chapter, 6, uh, Mark chapter 10, verse 6, for example, get my words out right, uh, that that means that to be trans is to go against God's word. And presumably that applies to both people like me who've been through a gender reassignment or affirmation process, to use the NHS jargon, and also to non-binary people who understand themselves as neither straightforwardly male or female. However, I think such a reading of Jesus' words requires ripping them out of context. And in terms of Mark 10, Jesus is actually talking about divorce. At the time, there were two major schools of rabbinic thought, and one of them argued that basically the law of Moses allowed you to divorce your wife for the most trivial of sins. Things like burning the dinner was a good enough reason to issue your wife with a divorce certificate. Note that the wife didn't have similar powers over the husband. Now, I think in that context, in which women have very few rights, in which being cast out like that made them incredibly vulnerable, what Jesus is actually doing is challenging the mistreatment of women. I don't think he's laying down the law about what is and isn't acceptable in terms of gender expression for all time. What's more, such a reading of that text, turning it into a text of terror, ignores what we've already thought about in terms of considering what it is to be made in God's image, and that being something we do in relationship and community. 
It's not like God is there when we're being woven together in the womb with a coin and tossing it and going, oh, heads, that one's male, oh, tails, that one's female. God is not a tosser, to put it like that. And at the risk of making another very bad pun, the bottom line in all of this, I think, is that surely human beings are much more than our genitalia. Trans-inclusion, on one level, is therefore not all that difficult. Respecting the fact that there's more to someone like me than the fact that I happen to be trans, what's in my trousers, what surgeries I haven't had, what toilets I want to use, and so on, surely can't be that hard. Getting those things right wouldn't be a bad place to start. But on another level, I think trans-inclusion is really very challenging indeed. It requires us to wrestle with questions like, well, what does it actually mean to be made in the image of God? And it also confronts us, I would argue, with how much the institutional church has invested in the current status quo. We preach Galatians 3.28, and we say that in Christ there is no male or female because of our common baptism. But then when these exceptions creep in, don't they? So some would argue that women can't be in leadership roles in the church, or that people aren't allowed to marry the person they love if they happen to have the same bits in their trousers, and so on and so forth. So thus, contrary to what some people would have you believe, I think trans-inclusion is a good thing, not just for trans people, but for everybody, including feminists and lesbian, gay, bisexual people who don't happen also to be trans. But we're not done yet with Galatians 3, however, because it raises its own deep theological question about what it actually means to be in Christ. When we look in the New Testament to references to God's image, they're bound up with Christ as the image of God, as we see in Colossians 1, verses 15 to 20, for example. And in Galatians, Paul argues at length about what it means to be in Christ in relation to the law of Moses. To be baptized, as he says, is to be clothed in Christ. And to recognize, as Rowan Williams argues, that those differences that distinguish us one from another are not of ultimate importance. Our identities, Rowan argues, are gifts from God. They're products of grace and they can't be taken away from us which I think is a really helpful insight to hold on to in the face of discriminatory behavior. But it doesn't mean that in the here and now, those things that distinguish us one thing from another are irrelevant, as if to be in Christ is to somehow be race blind or gender blind or blind to differences in social class or ability or any of those other things that distinguish us one from another. The fact is, I think, that while questions of justice remain unanswered, God will challenge us to reflect on social and ecclesiastical structures that fall short of what Israel realized when they were in exile in Babylon. That we all, without exception, bear God's image. And we can only do so fully when we're together in community, real community, as God intended for us. I've probably wittered on for quite enough now, but I would like to leave you with a question to think about this morning. If it were possible to go back in time and send a letter to your younger self, what would you want to say to them? If I could go back in time, I think I'd want to cheat and go back to three different stages of my life. I'd like to go back and find that five-year-old child who ran out of the classroom crying when they told their teacher that they wanted to be a boy 
And the teacher responded by saying that if you say anything like that again, your feet won't touch the ground. I'd like to give that child a massive hug and reassure them that all is okay. I'd then like to go back and visit my 12-year-old self, struggling with the onset of puberty and all of the feelings that that brought up. I'd like to reassure them that they're not a weirdo or a freak or an abomination. Actually, they're trans, and that's okay. And finally, I would like to write that letter to my 16-year-old self, sat alone in their bedroom wondering if the world would be better off without them. I'd like to tell them that things really do get better, that God is indeed real, and that they're loved beyond their wildest dreams by the God who in Jesus Christ became fully human, lived, loved, and died, and rose again to set us all free. I'd also like to give them a CD, a CD because digital downloads were only just becoming a thing when I was 16. I'd give them a CD by Grace Petrie, who I gather has been here and performed on another occasion. The CD would have on it my favorite Grace Petrie song. It's called Black Tie, and it goes a little bit like this. So let us pray. Loving God of unity and peace, we rejoice that in you we are brought to wholeness and that through your love we are healed of our divisions. As we come now to pray for your world, we hold before you in our prayers a world divided a world where the glorious spectrum of human existence is reduced to simple binary choices which lead to division and violence. And we ask for your forgiveness for our complicity in simplistic and reductionist ideologies of isolation. In the name of Christ, who unites us, we assert that in Christ there is neither slave nor free, Jew nor Greek, male and female, black and white, able and disabled, rich and poor, mentally well and mentally unwell straight and queer. So we pray for a world dominated by us and them, a world of othering and exclusion, a world of tribalism and localism. We confess the fears we hold in our own hearts, the suspicions we have of those who are not like us. The indifference we harbour towards those who differ from us in ethnicity, culture, language, gender, sexuality, social standing, health, mental health. We confess the prejudices that divide our society with fear of the other and a desire to exclude the stranger. And we confess 
that these set so many aspects of our national narrative. So we pray for refugees, for asylum seekers, for economic migrants. We pray for those who are the descendants of historic immigration. We pray for those caught up in inherited cycles of poverty and violence. For those who feel that they have to carry weapons from an early age. And for those who are prey to gangs and organized crime networks. Give strength to those who work for reconciliation between peoples in our city and in our country. Give clarity to those who speak up for people who have no voice to speak up for themselves. Give tenacity to those who seek to welcome refugees and we pray particularly for the West End Welcome Project as the group that includes this church prepares to welcome a refugee family to this part of London. We pray for a world of us and them. And we say that in Christ it should not be so. We pray also for a world dominated by narratives of male and female. A world of othering and exclusion. A world of simplistic division and binary choices. We confess the fears we hold in our own hearts. Fears of the other and the unknown. Fears of emotions and desires suppressed and repressed. We confess the prejudices that divide our society with stereotypes imposed out of fear or ignorance but reinforced for financial gain. Help us, as your people who gather in this place, to discover and rejoice in the glorious spectrum of humanity that you have made, and to learn to trust other people's stories, even where they feel different to our own. We pray for all those who have faced isolation and prejudice within churches because of their experience of their own gender. We pray for those who have the courage to speak out, to tell truth in the face of misinformation, and to model in their own lives the truth of your love for all people. We pray particularly for the work of One Body, One Faith, for the 223 Network, and for Stonewall. Give strength to those who, in your name, challenge homophobia, biphobia, and transphobia. We pray for a world of us and them. And in all these, our prayers, we recognize that our language is itself inadequate to express and match the intent that you have for your people. We are fallen, and the way we speak of you and of one another is also fallen. When we name your creation, we name it at best provisionally. 
And so we keep speaking binary into existence, asserting mine over yours and us over them. The confusion of our language, with all its inadequacies of pronouns and gender, reminds us of the confusion we live with and with which we must struggle to come to terms. So thank you for those who help us evolve our ways of speaking. We thank you for hymn writers and liturgists. We thank you for poets and preachers. We thank you for those who challenge us to speak a new world into existence. We thank you for scholars who renew our understanding of scripture and enable it to be de-weaponized. Give us open hearts and minds that we might better express the diversity of your creation and inhabit better the reality that we are all one in Christ Jesus. Amen.